Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest is Christian Coates Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and an associate fellow of Chatham House's Middle East and North Africa program. His most recent book, published by Hearst in February, is Qatar and the Gulf Crisis. Today, we're going to ask what a Joe Biden presidency could mean for the Middle East. Christian, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Now, look, a little more than a week to go in what's shaping up as the most significant election in the recent history of the U.S. Looking at the polls, I appreciate one needs to be very careful with them. But let's take the view that Joe Biden is elected president and explore what that will mean for the Middle East. Let's start with the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Do you expect that Joe Biden would bring the U.S. back in? And if so, will that rattle, particularly Israel and the Saudis? Well, I think the fact that Joe Biden was vice president during the Obama administration and was therefore uh, a key part of the administration that concluded the JCPOA in the first place and that several of his key foreign policy and Middle East policy advisors such as Jake Sullivan, were among the architects of the negotiation process and that many others who might be expected to enter a Biden administration in foreign policy State Department positions will also likely be veterans of the JCPOA means that he will be very likely to at least reverse President Trump's policy of withdrawal. Now, whether or not that means he can simply try to persuade the other parties to the agreement that um, this time it's different and the U.S. can just re-engage is another matter because, of course, it's not simply a U.S. Uh, deal alone. There are the P5 plus one and Iran also parties and Iran also faces elections in 2021 as well. And we actually may have a more hardline uh, Iranian president being real, being elected. We we mustn't forget that uh, the other architect of the JCPOA is Hassan Rouhani, and he cannot run for a third consecutive term. So he will be stepping down in the middle of 2021 as well. So I suspect there will be a desire on the part of the Biden administration to uh, re-engage, to either try to re-enter or to restart negotiations for a JCPOA 2.0. And the question then is, what happens to the other parties? Do they simply accept that? And what kind of safeguards can a Biden administration give that a future Republican administration simply wouldn't repeat what Trump has done and withdraw all over again and then would be back to square one? So I think uh, part of the issue a Biden administration would face is how do you um, regain some of the credibility that the U.S. has lost over the past four years in terms of signing up to international accords and then just withdrawing on political grounds? And I think that might be more difficult. And the Saudis and the Israelis, if America goes back in on some terms or other, how are they going to respond well, of course, one of the ironies of the situation with normalization with UAE and Bahrain, potentially at least a sort of better relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel is that it was the initial JCPOA negotiations, 2014-2015, that uh, 
both the Saudis, Emiratis, and the Israelis more on the same page, at least in coordinating messaging and in sharing concerns about the way they were cut out of the initial uh, negotiations. So I think a Biden administration would potentially need to try to reassure the Saudis and the Israelis that a JCPOA 2.0 would at least include more of their own voices in the negotiating process to try and make it more inclusive and to try to at least prevent regional spoilers from trying to undermine any such agreement in the future. Okay, let's let's move on then to the deal that President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, put together, the uh, Peace to Prosperity, the roadmap the White House says that will end the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Will Biden stick with a deal that many view as extremely one-sided in favor of Israel, or will he attempt to push America back to that role of honest broker or somewhat honest broker? I think one of the difficulties, the challenges that a Biden administration or any future administration will face is that the peace to prosperity plan has changed the political horizons of what is possible and what may or may not happen. To some extent, it's changed political facts on the ground as well with uh, with the normalization agreements that have been signed over the past uh, two months in August and September with the UAE and Bahrain. And so expectations have been shifted and they may not be as easy to reshift in in a future administration. Uh, it is a it is the case that the peace to prosperity deal was seen as very one-sided. I think a Biden administration will at least try to reach out to the Palestinian leadership and to ensure that they are brought back in. We mustn't forget the Trump administration has sidelined the Palestinians at every stage, uh, politically, but also through economic pressure as well. And so we may see more of a more of a push to bring the Palestinians back in. One of the big criticisms of the the Abraham Accords is, of course, that they don't have any Palestinian input. And that was true also of the um, Peace to Prosperity Plan as well. It's almost trying to make peace uh, regardless of the Palestinians. And so I think there will at least be a push to to put the Palestinians back at the center of this process. Now, whether or not that can happen, like with the JCPOA, I think is another matter, because political expectations and horizons of what is potentially possible or not have now changed over the past uh, four years. Let's um, drill down a little more on the U.S.-Saudi relationship, and particularly the relationship that Mohammed bin Salman has with the Trump White House, and of course with Jared Kushner. Will that relationship cool under a Biden presidency? And if so, how damaging could that be to Mohammed bin Salman? Well, the Saudi-U.S. relationship, which has always been bipartisan, which has always been based on a network of kind of shared interests and various levels, has become increasingly, and some might say dangerously, politicized over the past four years. With, as you say, the close personal relationship between Mohammed bin Salman and, uh, and Jared Kushner, and also with the perception in Washington, D.C., that the Saudis embraced the Trump White House and the Trump White House has returned the favor with protection, protection from congressional and other political and public criticism of the Saudis over the war in Yemen and over the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And so that protection may soon cease if we don't have a Trump White House any longer. And also if the Democrats pick up enough seats to uh, take control of, of the Senate. 
I mean, that's also another matter as well that the Saudi uh, officials may well be looking for to, to, to follow, is whether or not Congress also becomes um, a tool of political pressure that the White House can no longer or is no longer will, willing to push back on. Now, some of uh, uh, Biden's key advisors, um, such as Daniel Benayim, have written over on the Saudi relationship over the past six months and have called for a, for a reset, not for a, not for a rethink. And so that indicates that they're not willing to go the full hog of rupturing Saudi Arabia. They want to try and reform and reset U.S. relations based on trying to revive the values that perhaps the relationship was more based on in the past. And so I think that would take the form of giving the Saudis a period of grace to try to end the blockade of Qatar, to end the war in Yemen, to commit to a foreign policy much more based on international norms. I think they would be willing to give the Saudis a chance. Uh, that's, of course, what some of their critics in D.C. are saying is not enough. They have to rethink the entire fundamental nature of the relationship. But I think the Biden administration will try to give the Saudis a chance. And the Saudis, if they're reading the political tea leaves, will probably take that chance to at least present the Biden administration with a good faith gesture, such as um, finding a political path forward in Yemen. I think the war in Yemen would not necessarily survive long into a Biden administration because it would be something the Saudi relation Saudis could do to try to signal to the Biden administration that uh, they were willing to learn from the lessons of the past and move forward. And on the question of Jamal Hashoji, do you think that a Biden administration would be prepared to open up that narrative again? Because Trump effectively shut it down. Many people believe that uh, Mohammed bin Salman ordered the killing of Jamal Hashoji. I think that a White House under Joe Biden would be less willing to protect the Saudi leadership and to, to do so from congressional uh, criticism and from congressional pressure. And I think especially if Congress has more Democrats in the Senate, even in potentially a Democratic majority, that pressure would probably grow and that there would be more calls for high-level accountability in ways that uh, we have seen so far but have been rebuffed by the White House. And of course, one thing a Biden administration would have to consider is that over the next four years, this may well be the period where King Salman passes away and Mohammed bin Salman becomes king. So a Biden administration may then have to think about how do they, um, how do they respond to a King Mohammed and to the sort of Saudi-US relationship when a head of state is currently um, in such political difficulties in, in Washington and other key capitals around the world. Do you think that the Saudis erred in putting all their eggs in the Trump basket and didn't work the other side a little more? I think that was a, that has been a problem. I think in the beginning of 2017, at the very start of the Trump administration, there was an embrace, not only by the Saudis, by the Emiratis as well, to Trump on the basis that this was potentially a once in a generation opportunity to try and shape the, uh, uh, the policies of an incoming administration that seemed to have little attachment to settled, U settled US interests. 
And uh, we saw, of course, Trump's first visit was to Riyadh in May 2017. And we then saw the blockade of Qatar very soon after. And so I think that embrace, that kind of perception that the relationship was more transactional was something to the Saudis' liking. And I think that is going to be difficult to unwind, especially for the Saudis, just because that perception in D.C. has been so strong that uh, the Saudis have politicized the relationship by going all in for for Trump. And um, again, that's potentially narrowed the political basis of a relationship that has lasted for more than 75 years, but is now more than ever defined or at least understood as being with one uh, one political aspect of U.S. politics, and not only that, but the most polarizing U.S. administration in recent history. You mentioned the Yemen war. There are, of course, two other wars going on in the region, uh, Libya and Syria. Under the Trump administration, it's been pretty much of a just a hands-off We'll let these people sort it out themselves. We're not interested. Do you see a Biden presidency as engaging in an attempt to find a path to peace through uh, proposals that may involve the United Nations, proposals for dialogues? Do you see a much more hands-on attempt by a Biden administration to deal with these wars? I certainly see that there will be more of an attempt to push for international cooperation and multilateral initiatives to end the wars, bringing in regional and international stakeholders in a much more cohesive way than we've seen over the past four years. Um, against that, of course, is the, the fact that the first year of whichever administration takes office in January 2021 will almost exclusively be focused on domestic affairs, on the pandemic, on potentially bringing the pandemic under control on bringing a vaccine, rolling it out across the nation, and then on economic recovery. And so I suspect that uh, even more than most, domestic affairs will consume such bandwidth that uh, that will probably be the focus of the administration, at least for the first year and potentially for longer as well. Now, where that bandwidth can be spared, and of course in foreign policy with State Department and other US uh, foreign policy stakeholders, I do think there will be a push to bring those conflicts to an end. And there may be an opportunity to do so as well if some of the regional parties to those conflicts uh, who have seen in the Trump administration an opportunity to try and make whatever gains they can while they can do so, if that window of opportunity has now, if it closes with um, the Trump administration leaving office, that might make it easier to at least um, find a political settlement or at least a political path forward if some of the parties to the conflicts no longer think that um, they can win on the ground or in any form of military term. Well, you've anticipated my my next question very nicely, which is that both Turkey and the United Arab Emirates are jostling, and some would say rather dangerously, for a leadership role in the Middle East. And it's come about in part because of this U.S. diplomatic withdrawal um, which didn't begin with Trump, it actually began with President Obama, and we should not forget that. Do you think that Biden will seek a stronger U.S. presence, kind of a pushback against these regional powers that are jostling in this rather dangerous contestation? Well, the war in Yemen especially began in 2015 because the Saudis and Emiratis felt that they no longer had the U.S. backing to push back against what they saw as Iran's regionally destabilizing behavior. One would hope that 
2021, after six years of stalemate and inability to achieve a military victory in Yemen, that um, you know, there's no longer that feeling almost of, of hubris that um, you know, individual states in the Gulf can take matters into their own hands and succeed. I think there's a feeling, uh, more of a realistic feeling, a feeling of realism now that um, not, no parties in the Gulf can work alone to try and impose a solution on, on the region. Now, ironically, one of the main triggers, I think, for de-escalation of tension with Iran was actually that perception that, in Saudi's case especially, the US wouldn't fight for Saudi Arabia after the attacks on Saudi oil facilities in September 2019 and the lack of an overt US response and President Trump's statement that this was an attack on Saudi, not an attack on US interests, was shocking because I think there had been an assumption that whenever uh, there was a security threat, especially when Iran was concerned, that US and Saudi interests were one and the same. So it could be, especially after two successive administrations, when the US presence has been called into question, that a third um, iteration of that under Biden, on the one hand, the US wouldn't necessarily have a strong presence in the Gulf, because it would also be called into question as to whether the US was disengaging in any shape or form. But that sense of realism and constraint has proven quite effective, at least over the past year, in, um, in spurring de-escalation between Saudi and the UAE and Iran, and the kind of resumption, at least, of dialogue. And so, ironically, a more forceful US presence in the Gulf, with a more forceful US support of US kind of red lines, as the Saudis and Emiratis would have seen it, might give them the latitude to sort of become more emboldened once again. So it's ironic because you could see this going in different directions. Interesting point. Yeah. Now, now someone else who's made huge gains uh, in the region is Vladimir Putin, and he's done so really without having to uh, commit too many resources uh, and playing in some ways the same kind of game that Iran plays, this asymmetrical warfare using, for example, uh, the, the mercenary group uh, Wagner to do his business for him. Now, now President Trump has sat back and, and let that happen. But do you think there'll be pushback from a Biden White House on Putin's Middle East gains? Well, I certainly think there'll be much greater political pressure on a Biden White House from uh, US Congress and others to push back against Russian influence, not only in US elections and in, in other parts of the world. So, I mean, there'll be political pressure to do something there. I think, again, the difficulty will be not only that the Biden administration would be focused so heavily on COVID and on rebuilding the US economy and getting through the pandemic, but also Russia has really invested a lot more resources in the Middle East, in those regional hotspots from Syria to Libya and potentially in Yemen as well, that the US simply cannot match that influence on the ground especially because one of the few issues that has almost which attracted bipartisan political backing in the US has been a, a, a view that the US needs to reduce its military footprint in the Middle East. And so I think if that continues, and we're not talking about a US withdrawal, I mean, the US will continue to maintain bases and special forces and other 
key elements of power projection, especially in the Gulf states. But if the U.S. continues to talk on both sides of the aisle about reducing a military footprint, now the Russians will probably move in in greater numbers to ensure that um, in Libya and in Syria, maybe less so in Yemen, but potentially there as well, they have influence on the ground in terms of what, what, what comes next. And they've shown a willingness under Putin to invest those resources on the ground at that moment when the US is talking the opposite. So I think in terms of Middle East gains, we could see Russia continuing to pour in resources, including uh, human resources, and take advantage of that sort of desire on both sides of the US aisle to try and pull back to some extent. Now, I, I want to ask you about one particular area, uh, human rights, that really, under President Trump, uh, he gave a very clear and emphatic signal to these authoritarian leaders, to these ruling families, go ahead, do what you want. We don't really care. Do you think that Joe Biden, who, the decent man, that's the image that's being projected, do you think that he will roll back this pretty much complete withdrawal of U.S. concern about human rights abuses? Because what we've seen under a Trump presidency is this massive escalation uh, in human rights abuses right across the Middle East. Most emphatically, I suppose you could look at what's going on in Egypt, but, but equally in the Gulf, there's some terrible human rights abuses. Do you think we'll see a change there? We may well see a rhetorical restatement of commitment to safeguarding and putting human rights in the, higher up the policy agenda. I mean, I think we, we shouldn't fool ourselves that human rights has always been at the forefront of US or any interests and any interested parties in the Middle East. Uh, for example, I remember in 2011 with the uprising in Bahrain, uh, Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State at the time, said there were times when our interests and values collide. Um, when explaining why you know, the intervention in, in Libya wouldn't be followed by a, an intervention in Bahrain. And so, I mean, there's always been a, a streak of realism, I think, to temper um, aspirational commitments to human rights. Uh, having said that, I think they will be restated. I think it will be made clear to human rights abusers in Egypt, or such as with the Khashoggi case in Saudi Arabia, that there will be pushes for greater accountability um, potentially maybe tying assistance, military assistance, and other forms of aid, at least to certain changes in behavior. I note, for example, that another of the Middle East advisors to the Biden, administ the Biden campaign is Daphna Hockman Rand. And I mean, Daphna was the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for human, Democracy, Human Rights and Labor in the, in the John Kerry uh, State Department. So at least I think there will be more of an emphasis on, on, on putting those issues into the conversation that a Biden administration would have with regional partners. They wouldn't be ignored to the extent that um, they have been. And I think also there wouldn't be the same open disdain for human rights that the Trump administration has shown. Um, Trump himself, for example, calling Sisi his favorite dictator. So, I mean, I think that also, that has acted as an enabler for human rights abusers, just the notion that they, they almost have impunity right now. So I think a restatement of the commitment at least to inserting or reinserting human rights into the conversation 
would I think begin by sending a signal that it, this kind of culture of impunity is no longer going to be going to be there. We've been talking all along about a, a Biden presidency, and as you said, in some areas change, in other areas perhaps the focus will need to be domestic, so not much change. But let's ask the question, if Donald Trump is reelected, what do you see? Will the U.S. policy remain pretty much what it is, which some people throw up their hands and say, what is it in regards to the Middle East? I think that U.S. policy will remain transactional, uh, remain based on interests and the interests not necessarily of a conception of the national interest, but of a small coterie based around the president. And I think we will continue to see parties across the Middle East interpreting that interest for themselves and seeing how they best can engage with and benefit from those interests. And uh, as we've seen in, in, in Libya, I think especially in Egypt and in other parts of the Middle East, when uh, regional leaders feel that they can take advantage almost of an administration that is so transactional, then the outcome is generally worse for all concerned. And so were there to be a second Trump term in office, I think that that would certainly make any resolution of the conflicts in the region more difficult. I think it would uh, make any lasting resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian issue almost impossible just because facts on the ground likely would change so much in the next four years that whatever came next in 2025 would be almost impossible to reshape. And so I think, uh, and this of course is a concern that not only the US uh, partners in the Middle East, I think US allies and adversaries all around the world would have to be rethinking an international order, not only with the US disengaged from, but almost under a second Trump administration potentially actively opposed to. And so I think in that case, all bets would be off and especially also with with Iran, although given Trump's transactional tendencies and his mercurial policy making, he may also like to think that he alone could pull off a deal with Iran. So again, I think he would keep everyone guessing like he's done over the past four years. Well, we will await the outcome, certainly here and in America and in the Middle East. Christian, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Christian Coates Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. His most recent book, published by Hearst in February, is Qatar and the Gulf Crisis. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.